Hey, you're listening to Blindsight. Let's go. Dental health isn't something to take lightly. It's time to fight. It's time to thrive. Let's do this. Hello there. Welcome to Blindsight. I'm your host, Bill Lundgren, and I'm really pleased to be here today and that you're tuning in. A couple announcements before we introduce our guest. Uh, Number one, we are now AfterSight, that is, the whole agency that sponsors Blindsight is now called AfterSight, which is a lot easier to remember than the old name. So if you're looking for a website, look for aftersight.org. And uh, also uh, there's a, uh, a feedback line, which is uh, feedback uh, aftersight.org. Or we have a telephone line now specifically for giving feedback, any suggestions for new shows, Anything that uh, you think uh, you, you want to complain, you want to praise, we're always glad for praises, but we take complaints too. Uh, so give us a call at that's 720-712-8856. Glad to have you aboard, and I'm especially delighted to introduce our guest today, uh, Leah Gashel-Kessel. Uh, is our our guest. She is a uh, clinical social worker, a vast experience in a lot of things, including the subject that we will be talking about, which is blindness. And uh, Leah, welcome. Thank you for being on today. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you're on the program for a number of reasons, and I wondered... Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and experience and uh, what brought you to working with people with blindness. So, first of all, I have RP. I'm legally blind at this point. Um, And prior to my vision uh, deteriorating to the point that it is now, I had um, gone through some personal struggles in my early 20s, which brought me to learn more about counseling. I had um, I went into counseling for a period of time, and it really helped me. And I decided kind of on a whim to apply for a Master's of Social Work program, um, which was in my area. And I got in, I was accepted and I said, well, let's see how this goes. And I went through it. I really enjoyed the program. I learned a lot. And, um, and then I started working for my local County. This was in Northern Virginia. And, um, and I eventually became a school social worker for, which I did for about 15 years. And, um, my original passion and intent for going into the field was I wanted to do private practice. So um, while I was a school social worker, I also was able to start working at an agency on the weekends on Saturdays and venture into the private practice field. 
And my specialties were really anxiety and depression. But as my vision began to to worsen, I really realized on a personal level how important mental or how mental health plays into vision loss and how it can affect your whole attitude about the vision loss and about this change that is happening. And so as I've moved further along, I really, this, this became my new passion in the field. And at this point, I um, help run a support group for um, visually impaired people in Florida near my home. And it just meets virtually. And I'm just really interested in growing that part of my work, which is working with people who have vision loss. Because there is, I don't, I'm sure statistics bear this out, but it seems as though a lot of people with vision loss tend to um, suffer from a lot of anxiety and depression and they tend to isolate themselves. So I really think mental health and vision loss is really an important topic that needs to be discussed. Well, do you want to talk a little bit more about how you see it in terms of uh, anxiety, depression, and, as you say, isolation? Uh, And by the way, I also have RP, so I really uh, am relating to what you talk about and the experience of we have, uh, you know, in dealing with that. But how do you, how has it have affected you and what you see as a therapist? So the way that it's, I can talk probably best about how it's affected me personally, which is I think we we all have these preconceived notions of blindness, or at least I I did. Um, you know, you see how it's portrayed in movies, you see how people react to other people who are disabled in any way. And I think society, um, tends to almost, I don't want, I don't like to use the term microaggression, but there are certain sort of, uh, type of things that, that kind of can add up and, and beat you down a little bit when you have vision loss, such as even though the ADA is a wonderful law, a lot of places don't have accessible um, facilities or, you know, people don't really understand the support you need uh, with vision loss. And um, all of those things, if you probably have a propensity to anxiety or depression, you begin to internalize that type of stuff and it begins to make you or can make you feel worse about yourself and make it harder for you to really fight and get through those challenges unless you really begin to work that that type of thing out. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, but uh, I know for myself, I'll be talking to, uh, uh, I've decided to bite the bait and talk to uh, some other counselors at a conference, but it's really hard to get people to un- who are excited to understand how difficult it is for us to accept and be comfortable with our blindness or uh, any other any other disability with all the barriers that are put up. Right, right. I mean, it, it's for one thing, it's hard to find people who 
have intimate knowledge of what it's like to be blind who are in the mental health community. Um, So like if I go see a therapist, I can say, this is my experience. And the only thing he or she can say is, oh, I imagine that might be challenging or, right. or, or they, or they'll say something like they think you want to hear like, Oh, you're doing a great job or, you know, yeah. whatever it is, rather than saying, you know, being able to intimately say, yeah, I get it. Like, you know, when, when, um, people point to things and, and just, exp- and say the word there, you know, if, Something as simple as, oh, look at that house. Where And then I would say, where is it? And they go, it's over there. And I still can't see it. Right. My internal message in, inside me is like, I'm inept. I can't do this. I, you know, I, the, the narrative that goes on can, can go crazy. Whereas, um, you know, someone who's sighted doesn't understand that, that type of thing. And so having that, that experience and being able to help others to really um, work through that stuff, I think is really important. And the other piece is during COVID, um, a lot of blind or low vision support groups popped up and I participated in a bunch of them or I, I listened in and they seem to very much be focused on resources and apps and things that can help you, which is great. But I found for me the barriers were were almost you know making it hard for me to access the resources my my own mental barriers so mm. I think you know you can give the all the tools in the world to someone but if they're too either embarrassed to use them or you know or have some negative thought about using them gets in their way they're not going to use them so that's where I think the mental health piece is so important. And it would be nice if we had more blind therapists uh, standing up and identifying themselves so we know that uh, you and I, for example, are not alone, that there are others out there and that people can see that even therapists can be like them rather than feeling like it's a damn dichotomy. A therapist cited me, a blind person, and in that way understand, they would understand me. Right. And also they, you know, the the client would then feel more seen probably, which is another part of it is I think a lot of people with low vision um, don't feel seen or they tend to, you know, back to the isolation piece. Um, you know, it's easier sometimes, like, for example, transportation is a big issue. Um, we don't drive. If you don't live in an area with good public transportation, you have to use ride share like Uber or Lyft. That can be complicated. And, and so some people are, are like, well, it's just easier. I'll, I'll just stay at home. And, and, and they tend to isolate. And I think, um, you know, almost hide away and um, really getting someone to a place to empower themselves to be able to access resources like Uber and Lyft and just kind of almost see something that a a sighted person so easy to do, just get in a car and drive to go somewhere. um, It's, it can take a lot of effort for a blind person to do. And 
um, really getting them to a place where they're willing to put themselves out there to get to what they want versus just sort of going inward and saying, well, it's too hard. I'm not going to bother. I think that's super important. And when it's so hard, then we personalize it and say it's, it's my fault or I'm not good enough that I can manage right. whatever it is. And then that gets into the uh, depression part or in terms of even get finding those resources is the anxiety part. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, feeling or even to ask a neighbor or a friend feeling like you're a burden. Um, yes, and, there you go. Mm-hmm. You know, whether and, and that often has nothing to do with what the neighbor or friend says or thinks. It's our own internal monologue about yeah. that. And and, uh, you know, getting to a place where you can refute that internally and say, this is what I need. This is what I want. And going for it, because once you get to that place where you can go for it, you I mean, I, I can't even think of a time where once I went for it, anyone made me feel like I was a burden. It was more me thinking that mm-hmm. than any evidence that anyone has given me that's made me feel that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, if I could share from my own experience, uh, a friend of mine confronted me because I was uh, in this stage of passing, trying to pass, and I wasn't very successful at it. And he got angry with me because he said, look, you know how good you feel when you help somebody. How dare you deprive me of that opportunity to feel good helping you? Right. And that had a tremendous impact on me uh, to say, oh, it's okay for me to ask for help. And somebody is, you know, is as long as they're comfortable with saying no, if they can't help, then it's it's a fair exchange. If they can help and they're glad to do it and then we get what we what we need and not feel like a burden on other people. Right. Right. Exactly. Were there times when that happened, you know, you were saying that's happened to you. Is there anything that comes up for you when that kind of thing actually got in your way? With um, not asking for help? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, all the time. Um, I, I really, I would say, tried to hide my vision loss as long as I could Um, or minimize it or pretend it wasn't what it was, whatever. Because um, of my type of RP I have, it's very, I mean, it's always degenerative. But I I really, I drove up until about, let's see, like eight years ago now, I think. Um, Really? Yeah. I, I could see perfectly, you know, well enough throughout college and everything. The only thing I noticed was I was... I had less vision at night than most other people seem mm-hmm. to, but I wouldn't even have called myself night blind. Um, and then when I was 22, so my mom has RP. And oh. growing up, I was always told, well, this is just a disease of night blindness. So I figured that's all it was. Um, and uh, so I noticed I didn't see as well as my friends did at night, probably from a young age. 
But when I went to college, it became more prominent because you go out more at night, you're with friends Mm -hmm. all the time. And um, so I kind of thought I had RP, but I wasn't sure. And I think I went to a doctor and they weren't conclusively, you know, they said there's some change in your retina, but we're not sure. So I had an an ERG, um, the type of test which determines the diagnosis, when I was 22, and they they said, yes, you have RP. And I kind of, you know, I, I, I wasn't surprised, but I just said, okay. And I stopped driving at night at that time, but I still drove during the day. I could still see pretty well during the day. And um, over the course of the next 20 years, it deteriorated slowly and it got worse and worse. And, um, and I basically, when I was at work, I was in a big high school and I had to more and more go throughout the school and navigate unfamiliar environments, which became much more challenging for me. And, um, I think my way of handling that rather than putting it out there was more spending more time in my office. Mm. Um, and I, the, the schools and the school system knew I had sort of the night blindness part of the disease, but I don't think they realized about, you know, just navigating unfamiliar environments in general was such a challenge for me. And I did get orientation mobility training. I learned how to use a cane. I did well when I was with the orientation mobility instructor, and then I put the cane away and I didn't use it. And, um, and then I eventually tried to switch jobs in the schools to be working with young kids because I thought that would be a more office type of job. And that turned out to be even worse because I had to do, um, I had to type live on computer programs in front of the entire meeting. And it takes me forever to find the pointer on my computer. So that talk about Mm -hmm. exposure, that was pretty exposing. Um, Not to mention the pace of that work I couldn't keep up with. And um, there there was a lot that just didn't work for me. You had to use uh, protocols to evaluate um, pre-K kids for disabilities. And the protocols had a font that I couldn't read. And you had to do it at a very quick pace and all this stuff. So um, I ended up And we keep coping. We keep trying to cope. Yeah, well, we kept. Well, my way of coping during that time was to come home at night and be like, "I can't do this." <laughs> that was right. I mean, right. I, I tried to save. <laughs> I tried to save face while I was at the job. I did. Um, I let the the team that I was working with know. Uh, I mean, I shared with them my vision loss, but I don't think they really understood what that meant. Um, and I eventually advocated with my. Um, my department, I said, I can't do this job. And they, they were able to place me at a middle school where I worked for the last couple of years of my career there. And, um, it was better than the high school because it was a smaller, uh, it, a high school was, was like, let's say 2000 kids. This was about a thousand kids. So it was small on a smaller scale. Um, but still, at the end of the day, I was 
expressing to my husband a lot of frustration and and anxiety because I I really didn't advocate the way that I needed to probably. I was very terrified of using the white cane at the school. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I eventually, I applied for a guide dog. My orientation mobility instructor recommended I do that. And I was like, oh, I thought you had to be completely not see anything at all to apply for a guide dog. And she's like, no, you're legally blind. You can apply. So I applied. And this was all right before COVID. Um, And then I um, then with the school and I had made a decision mentally that at the end of it must have been 2020, 2020, I had made the decision that I was going to um, try to apply for uh, to leave the school's um, retire on disability, I guess that's what it's called, from my school system at the end of the school year in 2020. But then COVID hit and I said, oh, everything went virtual. And I was thinking maybe I can navigate virtually a little bit better. But it turns sure. out that even was was just as bad because, again, the pace with which everything moves and the pace with which I can navigate on a computer just didn't really jive. So um, I ended up leaving the schools in October of 2020, and I got my guide dog in April of 2022. So I now have a guide dog. And um, and since I got the guide dog, I've been much stronger with embracing really the, what I need with my vision loss, if that makes sense. Um, because the good thing about the guide dog is you can't fold her up and put her away. Um, and she is very helpful. Um, as my vision continues to decline, you know, she's just really helpful. She guides me around and, um, and I'm just more in the phase where I'm accepting what is and really focusing on what I can do and, um, the resources that are available to me and really working through the mental health side of things. Well, Lee, as I listen to you, I relate so much to what you're telling me, including the fact that I got uh, this guide dog I have now, March of uh, 2022. And, you know, what I hear you saying is that you were trying in every way to be like everybody else. And then you came to the acceptance, no, I'm not like everybody else. But I can make an ad- adaptation which would allow me to, uh, you know, be a little more uh, in tune with what uh, I need in order to do things differently exactly. and be successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, and it's sort of like I feel like you're going against the wind until you get to that place because yeah. – you know, once once I made that that determination and decision that this is what is, I need mm-hmm. to do what I need to. First, I have to identify what I want and do what I need to do to get there, and not sort of think about like kind of get too in my head about why and you know and and the the emotional side of things. But until I was able to really get to that place of of the full acceptance 
and the radical acceptance of what is, it, once I was able to do it, it just things seemed to move in, the, in a much more seamless direction, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And that, but that is so difficult to do because, you know, it's our, our self-image and it's like this is the way it's supposed to be. Now, you're much more, uh, when you talk about uh, your earlier years, uh, it took me forever to realize there's something wrong with my night vision. I was, I was that dense. You know, I thought everybody saw the way I did. And you were aware, at least, hey, my vision is a little different. So you, you know, you got your understanding a lot sooner than I did, I have to say. Uh, and congratulations. But more importantly, you also said, no, I don't have to be like everybody else. And that's the important thing. Right. Well, I mean, I think as a kid, I noticed like when I went out for Halloween trick or treating with my friends, like they'd run up and down these stairs that weren't lit and I'd be like straddling in the back. Right. And I'd be like, is it just me? Like it was very, and I was thinking, how can they do that when I'm just making sure I don't trip? And right. And then I would babysit. I remember at people's houses at night and they wouldn't have good lighting. And I would just be like, oh, you know, I, I noticed something was uh, was different because, um, you know, if people struggled like I did, they would have better lighting, I would think. So, yeah, um, yeah, things like that. But it did take a while. I had to force myself to say, look, I need to know, is this just me or is it a disease or, you know, is there something physically going on here? Right. And that's why I, I made that decision when I was 22. I was like, damn it, I'm going to find out one right. way or the other. So. Right. Well, you see, see, the thing is, I just assumed it was my uh, innate incompetence that made it mm. more difficult at night. That was, that was the kind of judgment I was putting on myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, because you don't have that much to measure with. And you had your mother's experience of RP, so you kind of knew there was something, but we didn't have that in our family. Mm, so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's so easy then to beat ourselves up and say oh. it's our fault that we can't do X, right. Y, Z. Right, like I was able to even know that there was something called RP. You know that there was night blindness right. in my family, so that even gave me a context to say maybe that's what's going on. Whereas if I didn't have that, I probably would have felt like. What is yeah? I would have been similar in, to you in the way like what is wrong with me? Why why right. you know why can't I run up and down these stairs and in the mm-hmm. dark? Yeah, and so part of part of our uh, tra- our education is exactly that to find oh other people don't have the same vision as I do. There's nothing inherently wrong with me. It's the problem of. Uh, you know, uh, there's something with my vision. And when I went to doctors, uh, if they knew what it was, they didn't tell me until mm-hmm. I did the electroretinogram. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that did it. And unfortunately, uh, they didn't tell me not to drink the night before. So I went in with a hangover when I had the test done. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine how that was, <laughs> you know, how that felt. Well, did that affect the result, like, did it make your, your no. retinas mm-hmm. react differently? 
No, I it it I I realize I think I realized by that time, uh, yeah, there there's something wrong here, mm-hmm. and that that you know, and then when they came up with the uh, well, first the doctors, uh, I was referred by a friend to get to an, uh, an optometrist. He referred me for the test, and they and. Uh, the optometrist said to my friend, don't tell him that he has RIP because nothing can be done about it and he's going to go blind. And, Mm. you know, he's not going to be able to handle that. And fortunately, my friend, who is a psychiatrist, uh, knew, uh, you know, that he had to tell me. And that made all the difference in the world for me. To know, finally, I have an answer to what's going on. Right. Yeah, identifying it, you know, is is the first step. Yeah. But the the piece that you're mentioning is like we we in your case you had a mother who had RP, but mm-hmm. for so many people we don't know anybody else that has blindness. So we don't know what to do. Right. Because we can we can't you know, we may not have neighbors or whatever who are are blind and can tell us what to do. We have to invent, in a sense, what we're supposed to do. Right. Well, and to be clear, my mom is the only one in the entire family who has it. So yeah. um, it. she was diagnosed, I think, when she was 12, but I don't know how that came to be or, or mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know what made my grandparents take her to an ophthalmologist, how that all worked. But um, there's, it's not like it's common in, in any side of my family. So it was her, and now it's me. And um, I did get genetically tested, and I have an autosomal dominant strain. And um, if I had had kids, it would have been a 50% chance that that would have mm. been inherited. So Right, right. Yeah, well, apparent my my sister also had it. She's uh, her ch- she's had children, but they got genetic testing and they were able. They were apparently cleared. They don't have the uh, uh, the genes. Apparently, was not passed on from their mother. But you never know. So at least in your case, you know the facts and you can work with facts. Yes, and that, that makes a big difference. Now. How are you letting people know in the community that you're available to uh, provide therapy in the support group and so forth? So um, the support group, I reached out to my local foundation fighting blindness chapter and kind of posed the idea of a support group really focused on the emotional aspects of vision loss. Because again, Mm -hmm. like I mentioned, a lot of them are about resources. Um, And I really wanted to focus on the emotions around it. And so, uh, the president, I guess, shopped it with the um, FFB, and and I uh, got some people interested through the FFB, and we've been meeting every couple of weeks. Um, we have about six or seven people. I think it's a great group. And um, is it other virtual than that, or? Is- Excuse me, I'm sorry, is that a virtual group? Is that yes, a- it's virtual, yep. Um, yep, we do it by Zoom. And um, and then other than that, I have, um, you know, it's just basically referrals, but I would like to increase the amount of 
um, people that I meet with who have vision loss or um, I'd like to put myself out there more. The only hesitation I have is the marketing aspect. I'm not usually good at that or I'm, I'm not super comfortable with going the, the only thing I can think of is going to a like an ophthalmologist's office and kind of trying to solicit people that way. Um, I did put on a Psychology Today profile um, that that was one of my specialties is working with people with disabilities. But um, you have to list a whole bunch of specialties, and I think that tends to get buried so, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah, so uh, that's kind of where I am with that. But that is an area that I want to begin to work more with, with people with vision loss. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to Blindsight. We hope you had a wonderful time and enjoyed the episode. If you like this episode, please make sure to come back next week for part two as Bill dives back in with Leah and we want to make sure that you guys get all that information. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or you would like to ask our hosts a question, please visit us at feedback at aftersight.org or give us a phone call 720-712-8856. All right. We hope you have a wonderful week. Talk to you later.